All right. So there's going to be a little bit of a heavy lift at the beginning of this one, but <laughs> just a little. I like I like that. It's like people need a warning. They need to tune out for four minutes and they can come yeah. back. <laughs> oh, man. That's my formula. That's my formula. You know, it's bore people and then surprise them when they come away at the end of it slightly amused. You know, I'm not going to name any names because it's not I don't like throwing stones or anything, but I find some public intellectuals. It's just like it's just say a bunch of jargon until people kind of surrender credibility to you. And then <laughs> I, I, I'm trying not to be that. I, I, I'm not just nice. trying to club our, our poor listeners with uh, you, you throw enough random uh 17th century literary references around, and then you hit him with a totally nonsensical statement. Yeah, so you can and, then, buy them. and then Crypto Kitties. So. Nice, nice. Oh, Obviously, man. there are still some people who are sore from our Crypto Kitties episode. <laughs> I think we, I think we explored absurdity in all its forms. Yeah, no, I think that's that's something that's worth looking into in the future. Is just like when you talk about something that's not worth talking about, uh, in what ways that can sort of like escape critique. But um, nice. That's not nice. where I'm going. Well, That's not where I'm going nice, today. Nice, nice. So today, today we're going to go the opposite of absurdity. We're gonna we're gonna explore deep meaning yeah. in all its context. Today it's just absurdity or, or whatever. Um, nice. I wanted to start off by telling you about a uh, really incredible technology of the classical world that gets used pretty uh, consistently across the globe up until about the 17th century and then very suddenly stops. Ooh. Okay. Um, and this technology is epic poetry, which... Okay. Yeah, which I know doesn't sound a ton like a technology, but you have to think about what an epic poem is or what it does. It was like this... this, this it, I it, might it, need to know what an epic poem oh, is. Yeah, you might need to know that one. Um well, an epic poem, it's like it, it's this massive poem. Generally, it's memorized by a particular kind of figure in, in culture, kind of a bard type figure called a rhapsode, who then goes around reciting the poem to like various mm-hmm. communities and this kind of stuff. And it was a really, 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 really big deal for a long time, to, such that we still use the word epic to describe things that are a really big deal. Like, uh, right, like that poem was epic. Right, or like LeBron James Bro. playing basketball or whatever. Right. Right, so actually, yeah. so does epic not mean something other than like, I mean, is that where the epic term like that was epic originates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, like this, this comes from epic poetry because basically uh, at, at some point when people start really analyzing forms of poem and ev- poems and everything, people decide that there is no greater achievement than the epic poem that oh. there, there's not more of a thing than you can that you can do. And this makes sense because what the epic poem does is it essentially uh, speaks culture to itself, right? Like, how, how do right, you... That, that's one of those nonsensical phrases that, that yeah, you're trying to establish credibility with. Well, it's like, how do you consider yourself American, right? Right. And the fact that you need to get 300 million people simultaneously in various complex ways to all buy into this one idea, you know, mm-hmm. give or take, you know, all political arguments within that idea. Everyone who calls themselves American has kind of bought in on something, you know, right. even if that something is, is contested constantly and this kind of thing. Right. Before mass so the epic media, the poem does this. You say, yeah, it's the thing that does this before print media. It does it before mass media. It does it before all these forms of information sharing. This was the way okay. a community recognized itself. Um, right, and so the, so so you're saying that we have epic poetry is is just taking the the world by storm. It's the unicorn of the say 16th century uh, literary. Uh, I don't know, uh, zeitgeist, uh, just to throw a word in there. And then it just disappears. Done. Gone. It, it, it's, it's no longer the correct technology. And I, I like to use this word technology to talk about uh, arts sometimes because, yes, there is certainly something that is like non-technological about art as well, and that's for another discussion. But mm-hmm. um, these are also techniques. These are also... Mm-hmm forms of information dissemination if the if like a book 
or the internet is a technology, what is the internet doing? It's just a, it's just a platform for channeling information mm -hmm. to a lot of people in a complex way. That's what an epic poem was. It was a technology for giving a lot of people information in a way that they could right. use really effectively. Um, then it disappears. So, okay. Did, because people had books suddenly? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, that's, that's largely the explanation for it, that basically there's a bunch of other explanations as well about secularism and like how the epic poem sort of demands a certain idea about God and this kind of stuff. But I, I, I think the, the sort of Occam's razor version of it is basically people were using like, you know, uh, broadside pamphlets and mm -hmm. various kinds of literacy, you know, to, to by the 17th century when this is happening. Um, you get people who are like, oh, well, I, I don't need someone to come and tell me a really long poem to get my nationality or my kind of understanding of the larger community that I'm a part of. We have other means of getting right. that information. Right. And so and that's so my general opinion at this point in our podcast is, OK, so epic poetry died and let's leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> or so we it's let it rest in peace. If you want to eulogize it, there are plenty of dusty podcasts out there. So why? Why here? Why? Why, why are you bringing it up? Because somebody brought it back at the beginning of the 19th century after, after what seemed like it would be impossible to do another epic poem. Someone brought it back and they brought it back in a very specific way, which I think can help us understand the Internet and our current technological moment. And wait, OK, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, this is like the end route to the uh, way. Right. we. Just, and, and so the person who brought it back is this guy called uh, Lord Byron who was a, a very famous kind of romantic poet. And he brought back epic poetry by basically um, making it pornographic. All right. Um, so, again, I, I know I keep hammering at this. Why do I care? Because the way I think about it is, if there's something as powerful, as long-lived, and as culturally significant as an epic poem that can be brought back into existence by pornography... How does this make us think about how technologies come into being and then how they exist? Um, specifically, to, to quote Avenue Q, is the internet for porn? Hi, this is Darian Bates. And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson Bates. And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our technology. And how our technology makes us. All right. Well, um, first of all, welcome back. I, we had a little bit of a hiatus this past week. Um, wow. And you're bringing us back with basically, oof. All right. Let me see if I, let me see if I can do this, uh, this, the transitive powers of this particular podcast. So we are, yep. we are going from the epic poem to yep. the epic poem with pornography and yep. to pornography to the internet so the epic poem equals the internet yes yes and that's an that's that's the simplest and most straightforward way to think about what an epic poem is because uh, it is the internet yeah yeah that <laughs> like think about something like social media right like mm -hmm. people use social media to like imagine versions of themselves and engage with their community you know that okay. like that this is a way to to suddenly make legible this really huge thing that you're a part of a country mm. or a, you know or a state or or even like a political party or something right like that social mm -hmm. media is, is it's just a way for people to kind of speak identity onto a massive information canvas you know mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and there were ways that humans did that for a really long time but wow. Before the internet, they had to, it had to be different. It had to be... Right. And before print really, culture, it had to be different. That's really interesting. I mean, before we go into kind of this whole kind of concept of the epic poem equals the internet, it's funny that we don't think about the fact that, like, prior to things like broadsheets and um, really any kind of printed medium the way that like even getting information and kind of sharing cultural norms, even from one village to the next, let alone from one 
you know, larger town area to the next or imagining a, a, a country like Italy, although at the time it wasn't a country like Italy, it was Venice and Rome and kind of all these different, um, mm-hmm. you know, these different um, warring factions. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess even how do you know what part of a country you're from? In fact, most of the time I imagine people living in like 12th century Europe somewhere being like they have no idea that they're a part of the country even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and so you're like, it's, it's not new, this impulse towards recognizing yourself as part of a larger body, right? I mean, religion mm-hmm. does, does that kind of thing, you know? Right. Uh, early nation states, various kinds of early communities, this kind of stuff. It's all this kind of impulse towards uh, self-recognition that you're both an individual, but you're also part of a larger entity. Um, And the epic poem is just a really, really complex version of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe about as complex as you can get without like some kind of uh, technique for inscribing and, and, you know, reciting information. Without clickbait. Yeah, and so here's the beginning of, of the Odyssey. This is Robert Fitzgerald's 1961 translation. He goes, Sing in me, muse, and through me tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending the wanderer harried for years on end. So this is talking about Odysseus coming back from the Trojan War. But right, this thing of like, sing, sing to me of the man skilled in all ways of contending. It's like, tell me everything a man can be like. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. in, in that way, like you, it, it's like it's like Googling, you know, how, <laughs> tell how me do what, I Wikipedia? Tell me about man. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. You know, and that this was a way and this was a and, and it was problematic. Then Plato has a whole thing uh, called the Ion where he's like, wait a second, like a rhapsode's not an authority on anything. How are we supposed to learn from mm-hmm. him? Um, this It's like, why ask Leonardo DiCaprio his political opinions? He's just an actor, right. you know, Um so, so the, the the epic is this big deal. It 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 fulfills a really necessary cultural impulse for a long time, and I think one that we see now filled in certain ways by the internet. Hmm. Um, right. Right. Which is also one of the reasons why it seems like we're so distressed that the internet has, rather than being this kind of universalizing um, communication force where everybody kind of joins a part of this like this kind of mass human and kind of consciousness instead it becomes these like like micro rooms of culture right like yeah you just cre- you create associations that are not necessarily geographically oriented but you still have kind of subcultures that are defined by whether it's politics whether it's gender whether it's i mean whatever your identify identifying factors are you create these kind of self-identifying cultures right yeah yeah these sort of little subordinate spaces and this kind of stuff Right. But you're saying that those still are essentially little little um, uh, inscribed cultures created by the epic poem that is the internet. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. All right. And and I All think right. I'm, I'm 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 starting to feel your literary metaphor here. <laughs> um, but but okay. So so if that's your if that's if you're saying all right, let's look at these two technologies and see how they function comparably. Mm-hmm. Um, you bring up something about the fact that the the, the epic poem was actually brought back. Yes, yes. Because, right, like, you, you don't really know how something works until it breaks. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how I watch my son learn with almost all of his toys. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. If you have children, then you get that right away. That, like, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they are basically into breaking everything to understand it. Right. You know? Right. And, and so it's like, uh, at a certain point, it just stops working. Like, basically, at least in, in the, the kind of Western literary canon, after Paradise Lost, like, nobody can write an epic poem and 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 people try like all all the best mm. poets in england keep trying to write epic poetry um and they keep pitching epic poem ideas like oh well this is the thing that could really make an epic poem now that everyone would really buy into um mm-hmm. there's only one poem in the next couple hundred years uh, up to present included there's other things that like are called epics like uh Wordsworth's prelude or or joyce's ulysses stuff like this but those in some ways, double down on being like very specific to niche kind of reading audiences. There's right. there's one attempt at the uh, at an epic poem that blows up and is maybe the most read thing of the early 19th century. Um, hmm. And so it's this it's an epic poem called Don Juan by Lord Byron. Um, hmm. And it, and if you know the the phrase Don Juan. Um, uh, Byron also probably, uh, in, in a kind of convoluted way, 
came up with the modern figure of the vampire. That's another way you can kind of see his his influence, like mm. uh, our idea of like the vampire as like a seductive sort of sexual um, allegory is 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 something that Byron came up with. Nice, nice. Anne Rice will be really grateful. Yeah, yeah. And so this is to say, like, you, you you can imagine yourself a little bit in that sphere. So so Don Juan, right? Like if you've heard the phrase a real Don Juan, like is generally right. synonymous with like a womanizer. It's a it's a 17th century or or perhaps even older kind of figure of of kind of Spanish, um, sometimes morality tales. But he turns it into this epic, and um, he writes an epic poem. He's a great poet. He writes an epic poem, and he does it anonymous. He has to do it anonymously because it's pornographic. And uh, also because it's pornographic, it starts getting reprinted instantly because it's, it's mostly out of copyright because you, you don't want to fight a copyright case for a pornographic mm. work of art, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just read to you the beginning of, of uh, The Odyssey, which is, you know, a man skilled in all ways of contending. It's very beautiful. It's, it's got this kind of masculine drive to it. Um, this is from the beginning of uh, Byron's Don Juan. And, and the two little pieces that might be useful to know is, one, he, he starts off with this sort of um, funny joke uh, on, like, you know, uh, four and 20 blackbirds baked into a pie, which is kind of a children's rhyme. Mm-hmm. And, and he's talking about uh, Robert Southey, who's the poet laureate of England, who, mm-hmm. who he dedicates his poem to. Uh, Robert Southey is someone who failed repeatedly to write epic poetry and was like, exactly what you think a British poet laureate would be in the 19th century. Uh, Very conservative, very stiff, this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So anyway, this is him. This is a little bit of his dedication to Southey. He goes, you, Bob, and he calls him Bob, which is, of course, another way to be really disrespectful. You, Bob, are rather insolent, you know, at being disappointed in your wish to supersede all warblers here below and be the only blackbird in the dish. And then you overstrain yourself or so and tumble downward like the flying fish, gasping on deck because you soar too high, Bob, and fall for lack of moisture quite a dry, Bob. So one, this is probably not what you think about when you think about epic poetry. Right. It's a little saltier. <laughs> yeah. And, and especially when you know that last line and fall for lack of moisture quite a dry, Bob. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually a, like a British street euphemism. Like a Bob is like a, a sex and a dry bob would be like sex where nobody comes. Oh, nice. So. <laughs> Classy. <laughs> well, By the way, we should have put a uh, <laughs> we should have put an explicit content warning on this uh, podcast that I'm learning too late. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll add that back at the beginning. But uh, you can imagine this. Like, like one of the best poets in the country is like suddenly, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what. It would be like, oh, I, I, I don't even know what the parallel would be right now. For like, hmm. who's a figure of extreme kind of cultural prestige who could suddenly start like doing porn and it would just? Uh, I guess I mean I could imagine someone like like what's what's his name Simon who did the uh, the Wire or something. Oh, David Simon. But it, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It might it might almost be like something like because um, he just did a whole thing on pornography. Um, oh, did he? Oh, never mind then. I guess, I guess, but you're right. He was always been kind of pushing at the margin. So maybe someone who's even more, more mainstream. It would, it would be like if Steven Spielberg started directing porn movies, you know? <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, you know, he has a late in life resurgence. <laughs> yeah, you never know. Um, and and, and everyone, it's like blew everybody's mind, um, especially because Byron was uh, a real bad boy, like maybe like the mm-hmm. original bad boy. Uh, one of his lovers famously called him um, mad, bad, and dangerous to know, mm-hmm. which is a, a pretty great character description. Um, and he, you know, famously had affairs with, uh, you know, probably men and women, He, uh, mm-hmm. including his half-sister, and, uh, you know, kind of left a trail of, of lovers, illegitimate children, and destroyed marriages in his wake. As he... So it sounds like it's more like if Harvey Weinstein suddenly started producing porn films, is actually what you're saying. <laughs> Maybe. Which but... might be actually where he goes next, by the way. <laughs> boof. Boof. Ugh. Yeah. Byron, definitely toxic. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, test case of toxic masculinity. Okay. Well. So, so... Just to keep us on track, because you know we're about a third of the way into this podcast, and uh, I, 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 I think it's a, it's a, an interesting analogy you've pulled, and you've gotten us to the point now where you're saying, okay, 
epic poem is kind of like the internet in that it really defines it's a it's a culture or it's a cultural technology that helps us kind of understand what we're a part of and who we kind of are as a culture and a people and all that and that this technology was brought back essentially by pornography in yeah. in Don Juan so i and obviously when you say pornography in the internet okay i i you, you kind of don't even need to explain that one um but so I guess in some ways, um, what's your point? My point is, what if we've really been thinking about pornography and technology pretty backwards? Huh. What if pornography is not some corruption of a pre-existing pure technology, um, which is, I think, often the way, right? Like Facebook right. do it using the most advanced technologies to stop you from ever seeing nipples on accident. Right, right. Or I mean, you have the famous rule of porn, right? The rule of porn for the internet, right? Is that there's, if there's, if there's anything, there's always a porn version of it. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's like there's there's inevitably a pornographic corruption of of anything, and I guess we just assume that the internet is that, right? Like that, if you create this this wonder space to innovate, inevitably it ends up getting ruined by somebody. Right, exactly. But what if the internet isn't the Garden of Eden and porn isn't the devil, but rather porn is a big part of how technological innovation happens, or at least what we might think about as sort of pornographic impulses. Hmm. So you're saying that porn built the internet? Yes. <laughs> we should. I should have said that 20 minutes ago. I was going to say, <laughs> you can just start with this. <laughs> what, what if... Instead of the internet leading to leading to porn, porn led to the internet. That would have gotten us there quickly. Yeah, boy, man, I really thought I would have nailed this one, but I I see that I've I've done a lot of talking here at the at the first half. <laughs> no, no, I'm all kidding aside. No, I think it's I think it's really interesting because I do think that there's, um, I think there's a really I think important thing to think about both in terms of what the internet is, which I think you've illuminated a bit um, in a really interesting way by alluding back to um, epic poetry as a technology that was doing something very similar to what, what the internet might be doing right now, which um, I don't know that I've thought about the internet in that way. I always think about the internet as a way to, there's a very transactional quality to the internet in the way that I conceive of it, which is somebody has a piece of information here and somebody else over here needs that piece of information, and it's kind of it's traded either by by um, by there being some sort of monetary transaction, or more often than not, being some sort of um, transaction of essentially social capital, like by me producing a podcast and somebody else absorbing that podcast. There is some sort of social capital that is conferred upon me as a producer, right? That I mm-hmm. might I might be able to to leverage in some other way. Um, or just gain kind of gratification out of having kind of a thought or, you know, intelligence or whatever I have being expressed out, right? Like, um, so I've always thought about the, it being this kind of like trading marketplace. Mm-hmm. But the the idea of the internet functioning more as kind of this reflect kind of reflective space and not reflective in is like mm, sit around thinking about like I reflect on my life, but a, a way for kind of this meta-reflective space where a whole culture can kind of create this storage space for the way it talks about itself and then to examine that kind of as a, as a body to understand itself, which I'm not sure that anybody who's producing content for the internet necessarily thinks that's what they're doing, but I guess as a en masse, that's kind of what's accomplished. Yeah, yeah. And, and then kind of to your other point about whether, well, so did pornography actually build that i mean did did essentially the sex drive drive innovation of the internet which which i i I think is a is it's that's a i think there's enough evidence to kind of give some credence to that theory or at least at least to make it make it worth talking about for another another 35 minutes (laughs) um so i mean let me just provide a little context even kind of late in the game here uh now that i know what we're talking about i mean i think when we think about the internet in general, right? We, it's kind of largely thought about that the internet was, or the, the origins of the internet are largely kind of laid at the feet of like DARPA, right? Like yeah. or the defense, 
um, kind of the Defense Department, which kind of created this networked ability to share information. And it was a very kind of micro network, right? It was the ability to um, essentially have have soldier, you know, like a, a, a base in one area, put information onto a network that could be picked up by a base in another area. And there was ultimately a hope that soldiers on the ground could access it. Um, but the internet kind of under the DARPA structure never really expanded beyond kind of these these kind of hyper secure networks and you can kind of understand why mm -hmm. and then the internet was kind of um commercialized in that um these networks were then made available to commercial commercial providers um i think now who we think of as being kind of these the internet access providers mm -hmm. and that's where we started getting kind of the internet as a system that anybody could kind of put a website on and i know i'm glossing over a lot of kind of technology and evolution and all that but really that's for the most part let's imagine that it was a defense department project that turned into a commercial network and is now the internet of today so um in terms of the infrastructure it's fairly straightforward it's and what's really interesting to me about it when i really think of um what you're talking about the epic poem and you're like yeah but the the epic poem i mean that's just kind of boring after a while <laughs> like <laughs> like the internet isn't boring the epic poem um, gets boring when you have books suddenly, but the internet, who could, how could the internet ever get boring? Because, you know, it's an, it's an, a massive amount of content. But what's, I guess when I think about that, it's like, but it wasn't guaranteed that the internet, internet would be anything more than like really boring, like, yeah. like treatises. The internet was not inevitably interesting, right? No, it's true. And, uh, I, I would go out on a limb and say probably the most interesting thing and probably the thing people were interested on in accessing on the Internet was probably porn pretty early on. Right. Well, in fact, I think porn was actually the first thing that was profitably sold on the Internet. Hmm. Um, you know, like you have kind of these early kind of brain children of the Internet, Wikipedia being one of the most famous ones, right, where it's like, look at this, look at this amazing like public resource of Wikipedia. And it's, it's like, great, here's this free resource that people are just contributing to like willy nilly and, and, and you know, they're getting, you know, everybody who contributes to Wikipedia has to essentially at least pay for access to the internet. And early on that wasn't very cheap and it wasn't necessarily readily accessible, which means that they had to pay to access the internet to do many things on the internet. <laughs> and there's this, famous uh kind of line from from avenue q right where they're talking about how the the, the song is it, the internet is for porn and you know somebody like jumps in at the end and is like well actually i did this this and this and this on the internet and then mm -hmm. it's like, yeah but what did you do after that <laughs> right it's like yeah well you know, you know the, the, this is a funny thing you know that um jimmy wales the uh the founder of Wikipedia got his start online uh, doing softcore porn. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I think, a, a good segue to, I think, my second point, which is actually, like, pornography has actually been at the core of a lot of technological innovation, um, not just for the Internet, but just in general. Um, uh, things like, like instant cameras, like Polaroid, was... Um, really driven by people's desire to take pictures of each other and not have to get them developed at a, um, <laughs> at a lab. Mm -hmm. I think even early, kind of early Polaroid advertising really hinted at this. They would like, you know, the, there was this kind of sort of seminal ad where this guy's taking pictures of all these ladies on the beach and, um, you know, in bikinis and everything. Uh, and then walking off with one of them at the end of the night with a Polaroid camera over his shoulder. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's like they're not not that subtle, um, and then you know, and then VHS. Similarly, I mean, the 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 battle between VHS and Betamax has often kind of come down to well, VHS was better at like um, arranging licensing, you know, licensing um, contracts with different movie distributors. And um, what's kind of not often stated in that is that the licensing that they actually the VHS was more readily uh, willing to allow was actually. Um, fairly scandalous content versus Betamax was Sony, which ran Betamax was, was like, nope, we're going to keep all sort of, you know, purveyors of smut out. And so VHS won. Hmm. Um, and then even on the internet, things like um, credit card verification sites. So Richard Gordon, um, who you, whose name you probably don't know, um, he started this company, Electronic Card Systems. 
um, and they really kind of pioneered credit card tra- excuse me credit card transactions um, for the for the Pamela Anderson Tommy Lee sex video. And now it's like when you can buy something kind of easily online for like, you know, Etsy or something like that's really where that originates. That functionality originates really in the ability to buy pornography or for the Internet. (laughs) So, I mean, I think if you really think about um, kind of how so much of this structure of this um, of the Internet and really kind of earlier stage um, kind of especially information devices Mm -hmm. uh it's like yeah no i mean i think you would be you'd be standing on fairly firm footing to say that uh that pornography at least was a factor if not maybe one of the driving factors yeah and i think what what i find fascinating about that is is maybe not that that's so surprising in fact it seems very intuitive when you think about it um Hmm. and, and and uh, just to return briefly to the epic poem thing, of course, like the the first epic poem, even before the uh, the the Odyssey, is is the uh, the Iliad, which is all about mm-hmm. Helen of Troy being this kind of uh, desire object for all these different people across these different cultures, and then like how that leads to war and everything, and about male rage. So it's like mm-hmm. at the beginning of epic poetry, we're talking about like desire and sexuality mm-hmm. and like the consequences of it and how this is like a foundational concept. Um, it makes complete sense to me that like sex and sexuality and everything would be a huge part of innovation, would be a huge part of technology. What's weird right. to me, what seems artificial then is this strange kind of pure puritanical impulse to sort of right. expunge sexuality or sex or desire from discussions of things like innovation and technology. Hmm. That's right. I mean, it's, you're right. There, it really is true that there really aren't that many drives in nature, right? Like, especially not that many drives that are going to be like, uh, make you willing to, I think, give up kind of the, the steady uh, kind of protection of a, of a regular job to go out and innovate something, right? Mm-hmm. There there, there really are like it's either I'm hungry or I want to propagate my genetic material. I feel like the, those are your like you either want to survive for today, or you want to uh, you want your you want children to survive for the next generation, right? I mean, those are our that's our survival instinct, right? I, I think so. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think this idea like why it's actually a little weird that we don't acknowledge sort of the sexual impulse in our innova- in our technological innovation. Yeah, and it, 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 to the point where it's like, it, that actually seems like it might kind of hamstring people understanding how innovation happens. And, I, it, and then you end up with like a lot of uh, discourse in the tech world that does a sort of magical thinking where it's mm-hmm. like, and, and then Steve Jobs said a thing and $750 billion later, there's an iPhone. It's like, mm, maybe, I mean, or, or, or maybe there are reasons you know, like uh, sexual, relational, cultural reasons as well that were like paired with, uh, paired with the technological change. You know. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's. Um, I mean, I'm really struck by. I don't know if you've been following this thing in uh, in China actually, but the way that they've been um, recruiting um, developers and technologists in yeah. China. Yeah. Have you followed this? This is, I mean, I think it's such an interesting thing. And it speaks right to what you're talking about in terms of, because of the imbalance in um, male-female, um, the male-female populations in China, which largely result of, of kind of intense family planning and the one-child rule um, and the preference for male children in sort of Chinese culture, um, you end up with this, I mean, I forget what the number is. I think it's like, I think it's like a hundred million off or something like that. It's like, yeah. it's absurd. I mean, we're at like a, we're at like a, a 70, 30 or a 65, 35 kind of like, like I, again, like check the show notes. We'll put the right number there. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, the imbalance is pretty significant and apparently there's advertising going on in, in China that is explicitly using is, is hiring women um, to essentially be like attractive they, women in the yeah. office for for male coders. Like yeah. I don't know how to how else to call it because it's 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 it, they're not it's not prostitution, but it's kind of hinting at it. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird, you know, the, yeah, they'll have uh, like job billboards with like a, a woman's ankles with a panty around them and high heels. And it'll be right. like, you know, come work here for the perks kind of right. thing. <laughs> right. It's pretty, right. pretty I mean, straightforward. That's, that's, that's fairly egregious. Yeah. I mean, uh, and just that we're not slamming China. I mean, this is no worse than an Axe commercial, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, on the other hand, an Axe commercial is not selling uh, employment at, a, at yeah. Google. It's interesting that it's it, that it, it, it's kind of crossed those streams of right. why would you want to be a programmer for this company? It's like, well, we're going to like explicitly say it's about sex, you know? Right, right. Although, I mean, what I would say is that there's something so Im- implicit in kind of the kind of the tech startup world and if you find yourself kind of around in like sort of the san francisco area and you watch a bunch of kind of people wearing hoodies driving like dodge vipers mm-hmm. or like lamborghinis like it's clear that people one of the major drivers is basically nerds be nerds getting laid is a major driver of like the san francisco tech scene yeah you're crushing it with our demographic man right <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, also this 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 also revisits some some pretty well traveled ground in terms of perhaps somewhat uh, selective and unhealthy forms of bias in hiring practices at places at at major tech companies, which mm-hmm. also seems to reiterate some of the kind of worst crimes of uh, kind of gender bias and this kind of stuff. Right. So yeah, like that 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 this this is often but it, it it's often depicted even those kinds of stories about gender bias and hiring practices as like a corruption not something that mm-hmm. was like there at the beginning or informs how the entire project is done but just like an error in right. in the proceedings right. of the project right and it's just it's 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 you know bad boys right mhm what you going to do right <laughs> nice well done. Now people are going to have that song running through their head. Today. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> man. Next three days. Um, all right. So, I mean, I'm, I feel like there's there's maybe arguments to be made about how that isn't what's happening or that, that sex isn't the primary drive behind the development of our technology, mm-hmm. uh, that there are higher impulses, that there is the um, um, higher angels of aspiring for, for humanity's greatest goals, mm-hmm. greatest achievements. You know, um, I'm not sure that everyone that created an epic poem, although I, gosh, I feel like people didn't used to write epic poems. I feel like they were like dropped out of the ether by some bard. <laughs> like, I feel yeah. like Homer wasn't even a person. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like how nobody, you know, it's like, it's like how Drake doesn't write his songs. You know, it's like a. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. We are, uh, we're just hammering people today. <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, that shouldn't be a surprise. It's like a cadre of, of, of writers. Who, right. like, on the other hand, you just gave Drake the cover of being Homer. Yeah, so, <laughs> Drake's like, Oops, I'm just like, I'm just like the Bard, really. Well, like, like Drake, Homer is also not a single person. It's like a, it's a vague reference to what is likely simply a cultural storytelling tradition, right? And, and so, right, like Drake isn't a person. It's like a pseudonym that stands for a certain kind of performer uh, who's nice. backed by like an organization. You know, that's going to be on Drake's Wikipedia page now. <laughs> it's not a performer. He's a pseudonym backed by an organization. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And so, nice. so yeah, and then then it, it, you know these things develop over time because these stories are memorized. They change depending on who the particular person is saying it and that kind of stuff. Maybe a, a good way to think about it would be like uh, something like Snow White, right? Which of course, like there's mm-hmm. Disney Snow White, but Snow White exists long before disney and will exist after and this kind of stuff right right well so i mean so let's let's go back to um kind of this this larger question then so it's like okay if 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 the sex drive is actually one of the major drives at the core of our technology technological development um and we seem to be really ambivalent about that we kind of don't want to acknowledge that um i mean but is it actually a kind of a major problem? Is it a problem that the sex drive is at the core of our um, technological development? That that question sounds like another question. What kind of question? Is this apocalypse or utopia? <laughs> nice. Uh, I have to admit, though, I might have been teeing that one up just a little bit for you because we've been running long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is yeah. 
what do we think? Uh, utopia being we'll we'll discover some kind of uh, you know uh, sexual paradise in which healthy sexuality and technological innovation are twinned in a kind of uh, literally orgasmic <laughs> future, um, <laughs> or apocalypse in, in that actually like uh, this really is kind of a corruption and not just corruption but a corruption at the very root such that uh, the the kinds of dangerous perversions and excesses that are associated with, uh, I don't know, the worst parts of, um, I don't know, sexual exploitation and violence are, are also wrapped up in the basis of our technology. Gosh, I think it's a real problem that... <laughs> and th- th- So this is coming from uh, anybody who doesn't know uh, us and listen to the podcast, you might know us a little bit better, maybe more than we want you to. Um, (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, we, we, I don't know that we've gone into significant background, but, uh, you know, we're both, we're both fairly um, uh, British. And I guess that is both true and also a euphemism. Um, Yeah, we come from a fairly waspy uh, family Mm -hmm. and, and it's not the, um, it's not like growing up in like Kinsey's family or something. Although I think our grandfather was. Yeah, I was about to say it's a little bit like that. <laughs> our grandfather was the uh, what is he? He's the he's the authoritative scholar on the French erotic poet Apollinaire. Yeah, yeah, and to do like yeah, a pornographic film festival yearly. Right, right. So we we come by it honestly, but with a generation <laughs> removed, I'd like to think our father is not that. Um. So um yeah so I you know and you know, we. Meanwhile, uh, we on the other side of our family, we come from good, solid Midwestern farm stock. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I can't say that I, I, I enter this conversation. You can even hear it in my voice. I enter this conversation <laughs> with total comfort. Oh. <laughs> it's hard to talk about porn. Oh, my gosh. It's kind of hard to talk about uh, sex in general, one's sex drive, one's, you know. I mean, let me just tell you what caused me to start companies was just a love of, um, you know, coming up with my own logo. Oh, yeah? Um, no. <laughs> no. Desire to get laid. Definitely sex, yeah. Yeah. I was married before I started both of my companies, so. Yeah, and still happily um, married, too. Just <laughs> And still happily, and remain. Well, we'll see after the podcast airs. Um, so, yeah, so I think, so despite not being maybe the most comfortably liberated person in the world when it comes to these matters, um, I do think there is a, I think there's a problem with not recognizing, with not knowing how to come to terms with these kinds of motivations that kind of underpin a lot of the kind of drive to invent and because there, because there are some really unsavory parts of it, mm-hmm. right? For, for everything that you could sort of say, look, you know, like the moonshot was really just kind of this, this, you know, you know, penis size comparison game between uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev. But, you know, but aren't we glad that we did it because we invented all this stuff and our world is better for it. Um, so, yeah, the latent sexuality that's buried in there was still like really powerful, like. It also leads to kind of really toxic masculinity in forums and in gamer cultures and in literary cultures and really any culture. I could probably list most cultures and say that there's a fair amount of kind of latent toxic masculinity that's just kind of in there um, as people kind of, you know, vie for power and kind of, you know, implicit sexual dominance, even if it's not made explicit. And, and we've seen clearly it's sometimes made explicit. So no, I th- I, th- I think it's a real problem when you have one of your core drives, one of your core motivational drives for the people participating in it, unacknowledged. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, there's such a risk in doing that. In that, a you don't know how to handle kind of that energy in a in a healthy way, and b if that energy goes frustrated because people, even if they didn't think they were doing it for that, they were kind of doing it for that. Mm-hmm. Like if people like just to use kind of our our uh, kind of, the you know, the, the programming nerd who's looking to kind of like be recognized by being successful and he becomes successful and he's like, why, why hasn't this achieved the thing that I wanted it to achieve, which is really, I mean, to, you know, to jokingly say to get laid, but actually just to have kind of a, a stronger 
profile in kind of the sexual marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> you do feel like with people like Harvey Weinstein, and they go into these spaces to become powerful people for because they have these urges, and they don't know how to healthily kind of apply those, and they just think that the power then gives them their success and their power gives them the the permission to finally act on these urges and this thing that drove them to get there in the first place and not coming to terms with that um, is a problem. But you either have to understand that this motivation is behind a lot of people who are in the business and not to be not to give them permission to act on it, but to say, like, if this is if this is a real motivating factor, we've got to figure out a place to put that so that so that we still have that kind of drive behind our innovation without having this other kind of kind of toxic manifestation of those urges. So I think it's a problem. I think it's a problem not understanding that and not being willing to acknowledge in a real way that the sex drive is a major part of our technological um, innovation culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think so I, I think the that's... number that I guess I would give, I would... You know, actually, I'm going to give this a really low number because I think if we can't come to terms with this, it feels like we are going to, like, continue to just, I mean, it's it's like people who are spiraling and they can't, like, it's like they keep destroying their relationships and not, not understanding why. And it's like, I feel like that's, that's what we're going to end up with if we can't come to terms with this kind of... Um, kind of the sexual urges underneath our innovation cultures. So I'm going to, I'm going to give it a two and I think we should seek help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I think we probably do need to seek help. Yeah. If, if what we're adjudicating is the kind of impulse to, uh, an- annihilate this or, or, or conceal this aspect of kind of, uh, how technologies come into being and what they are. Yeah, I agree. Like, I, I think that something like, uh, Byron's Don Juan, what's so incredible about it is that like nobody for, for hundreds of years thought epic poetry would go away. And it kind of mm-hmm. did basically because it, it, it just was slowly strangled off by becoming increasingly culturally irrelevant uh, right. a, as, as a form of media. And then also the content, like people were always trying to find content for it. Um, right. You know, who God, should the epic Can you just imagine be? what some of these dusty, like I just picture like <laughs> this kind of like like stiff upper lipped kind of British scholar sitting in like the Wren in like Cambridge, like sitting in front of something and just trying to think of the most like highbrow prose, right? Like he's just like, yeah, like that's not a place that I want to enter. No, no. And that, that was the thing. I mean, the, the British especially had really led themselves into a bit of a, a dead end with like, you know, a lot of them tried to write epics of King Arthur and this kind of stuff uh, to, Kind of grasp this the myth of British the British origin story this kind of thing nothing had worked it, nobody recognized themselves in those poems mm-hmm. it looked it looked so artificial and sort of mm-hmm. high blown and then Byron writes Don Juan and and, and it's just it, you know by by some estimations it's it circulates something like five hundred thousand copies which you know by comparison I think the total run of Frankenstein ran about five hundred copies you know. <laughs> So, yeah, five hundred thousand copies. How many readers were there in? It's like really unclear. Nineteenth century. There, there's some good estimates about you know the the British reading public in the Romantic period, but the part of it is that like a lot of books in that period were read out loud. So even mm-hmm. one text would likely have an audience of somewhere about twenty five different listeners during its lifetime. Mm-hmm. So if you want to multiply you know five hundred thousand by twenty five, like you you quickly and and it also circulated and brought circulated in broadside pamphlets and that kind of stuff, which is like, you know, the, the equivalent of like Twitter posts. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. Like, uh, so basically we can just assume that almost everybody read Don Juan. En- enormously, enormously read. And it's like, I think a huge part of it is because people suddenly recognized, you know, the, the urges and faults and hilarity and uh, of modern life in this thing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it reflected them in, in a really mm-hmm. meaningful way. And that that required the inclusion of sexuality as hmm. as as part of its apparatus. And and the figure of Don Juan's really useful because he he's somebody who you can judge. Like he's he's mm-hmm. traditionally a figure who's often becomes part of a moral about like right. the the excesses of womanizing and violence and this kind of stuff. Like you don't want to be a Don Juan at the same time right. that he fulfills this 
purpose of being an epic hero who's like winning women and you know like uh, it's kind of super masculine man and this kind of stuff so you know which you can also then judge right like he's a he's a he's a figure that allows everybody to kind of meet at one place mm-hmm Mm-hmm. And I think I, well, so you're gonna need to give a number. Yeah, I think we just got into more history of Don Juan. Yeah. <laughs> so the the if what we're judging is the refusal to accept this sort of pornographic impulse, I agree. Like so, like I'll say like a three. You know that that it, as long as we refuse to acknowledge like the essential content of something like the internet or the purposes mm-hmm. or the drives of creating these technologies, we're not really going to understand these technologies very well. Um, right. Or how right. to innovate and we're gonna, We're just trying to figure out, could you, can you imagine the internet if it was started by a 17th century British scholar? <laughs> right. <laughs> just like picturing like the content that would be out there. You know what people would love? In fact, you know what you can do is if you can go to betterlivingthroughbeowulf.com. <laughs> <laughs> you would see what the internet looks like to an 18th century British scholar. Yeah, and you, you could just go to, like, a library website, you know? Go to right. the U.S. Right. government's website. Like, these aren't the most heavily trafficked areas of the Internet, you know? Right, right. But they are, they are in some ways, they are the vision of what kind of the... They're like the utopian vision of the Internet, right? They're like, this is what the Internet can do. It can provide... People can provide information instantly to other people in useful ways. Um, but it's not a particularly... Um, it's not particularly reflective of people in their daily lives, which is really involves pictures of their food, cats, and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Food, cats, and porn. The three essential right. drives uh, are what right. mostly fill up the internet. Nice. Nice. And we can probably get away without food, but cats and porn, I guess that's what's, <laughs> <laughs> what's going to keep us going. Oh, um, man. All right. I, um, wow. I don't know what that I'm, was. I have an editing job ahead of me. <laughs> Woo. All right. This could be a 20 minute podcast. Wraps By the way, it. if you're listening to this podcast and it is 20 minutes, we are now at uh, at 56 minutes and 24 seconds. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just 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 know what you're that you're missing a lot that yeah. involves <laughs> two 30 something British people, uh, or just British heritage people uh, being uncomfortable about uh, sexuality. Yeah. And censoring their work so it doesn't get on the Internet. <laughs> right, exactly. The last thing we need is for this to be on the internet. Yeah, ooh. where people can come to a healthy understanding of sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> what we got to do is censor ourselves, so nobody can hear us talk about this. Oh man, yeah, we never said we weren't part of the problem. Oh man, I, we are. Yes, exactly. We. I am leading us towards a two. <laughs> All right, nice. I look. I look forward to talking about aesthetics in the late Romantic period next week. Yeah, that should be good. That should be good. <laughs> Nice. All right. That's not what we're talking about next week. Tune in for something maybe more interesting than that. But uh, thank you, sir. As always, check us out. Apple Podcast, Stitcher now. We are confirmed. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll see you next week. All right. Love you, ma'am. I love you too. Bye. 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 (laughs) 